In this episode of Data Framed, a Data Camp podcast, I'll be speaking with Andrew Gelman about statistics, data science, polling, and election forecasting. Andy is a professor of statistics and political science and director of the Applied Statistics Center at Columbia University. And this week, we'll be talking the ins and outs of general polling and election forecasting, the biggest challenges engaging public opinion, the ever-present challenge of getting representative samples in order to model the world, and the types of corrections statisticians can and do perform. Chatting with Andy was an absolute delight, and I cannot wait to share it with you. I'm Hugo Bown anderson a data scientist at DataCamp, and this is data frame welcome to data frame a weekly data camp podcast exploring what data science looks like on the ground for working data scientists and what problems it can solve i'm your host hugo bound anderson you can follow me on twitter at hugo bound and data camp at data camp you can find all our episodes and show notes at datacamp.com slash community slash podcast Hi there, Andy, and welcome to Data Framed. Hello. Such a pleasure to have you on the show, and I'm really excited to have you here today to talk about polling and, and election forecasting. But before that, I'd like to find out a bit about you, just to set the scene. So my first question is, what are you known for in the data community? What is the data community? The data community, I think, is the rough, broad collection of people working with data analytic techniques, working with data science, and working with large and messy data sets these days. I'm probably best known as one of the authors of the book Bayesian Data Analysis, which came out in 1995, but then we've had two more editions since then. So that was a book, I like to think of it as the first applied Bayesian statistics book. So a lot of people who've gotten into Bayesian statistics have gone there through our book or use our book as a reference. Great. And maybe you can tell us a bit more about Bayesian statistics in general, just by way of introduction. And I suppose there are two types of statistics in general that we talk about, which are Bayesian statistics and frequentist statistics, right? So in Bayesian statistics, all of your unknowns all of your parameters, unknown parameters and predictions are associated with a probability distribution. So the way you solve a problem using Bayesian inference is you put all of your knowns and all of your unknowns into a joint probability distribution and then use the laws of probability to make statements about the unknowns given the knowns. And so you've actually done a lot of work on implementing a lot of Bayesian techniques in, in a language called Stan, right? In fact, a language in which, as you mentioned, probability distributions are kind of the core objects of Bayesian statistics. I suppose distributions are first-class citizens in Stan and other what are known as probabilistic programming languages, right? Right, exactly. So I can, I can give you a, a simple example. Suppose you're doing an educational innovation and you want to look at um, students' test scores after the intervention. So you start with basic statistical ideas. You fit a linear regression model, say, predicting the test score given their pretest score and given an indicator um, for whether they were got the treatment or the control. So that's regression. That's not Bayesian yet. It's just statistical modeling. And it can become more or less difficult. It can become nonlinear, 
you can control for more predictors, not just your pretest, but all sorts of student characteristics. There's a million things you can do. What makes it Bayesian is that this regression model has parameters, like the effect of the treatment, um, how much the post-test is predictable from the pretest. There's parameters for how big your variance is, uh, shapes of distributions, whatever. All of those parameters are assigned a probability distribution called a prior distribution. So you put that all in STAN along with your data, and then it gives you a posterior distribution, which represents your uncertainty about the parameters after seeing the data. And so Bayesian data analysis and Bayesian inference, I think, historically, we've we've seen them to be incredibly powerful, but maybe not, haven't been adopted as widely as Bayesians would have liked. And I think a lot of learners, a lot of people learning data science and statistical inference may find Bayesian data analysis even a bit scary. And firstly, is this right? And secondly, why, why is that the case? And how can we correct that? Well, in Bayesian statistics, you, you kind of make a deal with the devil. You assume a probability model. So you make a big assumption. And having done that, you can make predictions about just about anything. So I think maybe it's a little scary in some way because it's so powerful and so easy to use. It's like those 3D printers, right? People are afraid of them because they can print anything. So in Bayesian statistics, even if you have weak data, you can get inferences and the inferences then become driven by your prior distribution. There's a saying we have in Bayesian statistics, with great power comes great responsibility. And what that means is that in Bayesian inference, it's very important that you check the fit of your model and check the reasonableness of your model. So in that sense, there's kind of two approaches to, to statistics. One approach is to make very minimal assumptions, and the other is to make maximal assumptions. The Bayesian approach is really you make maximal assumptions. What I like to say is you create a paper trail going from your assumptions to your conclusions. Then if your conclusions don't make sense, you look at what was wrong with your assumptions. And what was wrong might be your model for your data. Maybe your sampling was biased and you didn't recognize that. But whatever it is, some, somewhere you need to go back and forth. You need to communicate between your assumptions and your conclusions. And, I mean, a lot of people would rather work without assumptions. And sometimes you can. We can talk about examples. But basically, if you have a clean problem and good data, then you don't need to work with a lot of assumptions. Well, except for the assumption that you have good data. As the data quality becomes worse, as your questions become more difficult to answer, you need to put more assumptions in. Um, then Bayesian inference becomes more useful. Absolutely. And one of the great things that you mentioned there was the ability to check your model after the fact. And we have enough computational power to do that these days, right? So for example, once we have our model, we can simulate what the data would actually look like and compare that to the data we actually saw. Exactly. We call that posterior predictive checking. Now, people have been doing this for a long time. Um, they were just not under that name. There was a book from the 1950s by the statistician Frederick Mosteller where they were analyzing. It was data from an experiment. It was called a stochastic learning experiment. They were actually giving electric shocks to dogs in cages and seeing how long it took for the dogs to figure out that the shock was coming. So they had this probabilistic model. And then after fitting the model, they simulated fake data, and they compared the fake data to the real data. And in the 1970s, um, the statistician Brian Ripley, who was working on spatial statistics, 
and since has become very famous for his involvement with, with R, Brian Ripley was fitting spatial models and again did the same thing. He had a model that seemed kind of reasonable. He simulated replicated data from the model and it didn't look like the real data and that, that inspired him to expand his model. So it was examples like that that motivated us to formalize this idea of model checking. And I think people have always checked their model, but there's been a sense in which it's been like outside the system. It's not that people are embarrassed to check their model, but it's almost like people think like, it's like, well, I'm a good person. I'm a good citizen. So I check my model and it, it hadn't been formally encompassed into statistics. And in the Bayesian framework, you can do that. You can put model checking right in the middle of the process and not feel that it's some external thing you're doing. I'm glad you mentioned that because that was my next point, that it is actually baked into the Bayesian workflow, the idea of model checking. Yes. So this was Bayesian data analysis. Are there any, any other things that you're known for in the data community? I'd like to say that I'm known for statistical graphics because in the in the early 2000s, I did a lot of work trying to integrate statistical graphics with statistical analytics. So traditionally, there's this idea that exploratory data analysis is looking at your data and finding interesting patterns. And confirmatory data analysis is like crunching the numbers and getting your p-values. And exploratory data analysis, again, was kind of on the outside of statistics. Its proponents would often say, forget all this silly modeling stuff. Let's just jump to looking at the data. But what's interesting is if you think carefully, exploratory data analysis is finding the unexpected. So to say I'm finding the unexpected means that's relative to the expected. And in fact, exploratory analysis is most powerful when it's tied to models. So I think of exploratory data analysis and statistical graphics and learning new things from data, from visualizations it's actually fitting in very well with Bayesian inference and formal statistical modeling because you fit the model. The better your model is, the more you learn from its falsification. So like way back, Copernicus had the model that the planets were going in circular orbits around the sun, and it's easy to falsify that. Um, but then Kepler moved to the elliptical orbits. So falsifying that became more interesting and so forth. So every time we have a model, that motivates more sophisticated graphics, which allows us to learn more. So how did you get into data science and statistics originally? I always was good at math ever since I was a baby. And then I've written about this, actually. But, but anyway, when, when I was in high school, I did the math Olympiad training program. I found that there were people better at that than I was. We had very naive view back then, so we didn't know about applied math. We just knew about this thing called math, and we thought ability was kind of unidimensional. But anyway, I went to college and studied physics and math, and I didn't want to be a pure theoretician. I just felt I wasn't good enough to make useful contributions in, in that way. I first took a probability class because it was in the evening, like it, it fit my schedule. So I took probability and stochastic processes and then took statistics. And I really like that. In statistics, there is kind of a continuous connection between everything that I care about. So there's a connection between things that I can do like mathematics and also things like politics, public health economics, sociology, like all those things, there, there's 
kind of a continuous thread from these qualitative thoughts about what's going on in our country, what's going on with the world, how do people learn, all sorts of things like that, through qualitative thinking, statistical modeling, uh, mathematical analysis, programming, all those things. So it was it was really perfect for me. I, I sometimes think that statistics should be called mathematical engineering. Like they have electrical engineering and mechanical engineering and statistics is mathematical engineering. I like that. And something you, you hinted at in there or spoke to directly is that, you know, it is this marriage of your aptitude and, and, and mathematical skills, but also your serious deep interest in the political and social sciences. Yeah. In college, I minored in political science. And so I, I found that, that very interesting. I mean, political science is a funny field because you don't make progress in the same way as you do in a technical field. You can say, Technically, we can do all sorts of things that Gauss couldn't do or whatever. I'm sure he could figure it out when he saw it. But, you know, we just know stuff they didn't know. Uh, in politics, like, what do we know that Hobbes didn't know? Well, it's hard to say. Like, a lot of specific things, like <laughs> the size of the incumbency advantage and, and so forth. But, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit different, right? Like, it's, it's more like something like architecture. Like, we have buildings now, but... It's you're just you're you're building things that serve current purposes. Then maybe the principle of the technology changes, um, but the general principles aren't changing. We'll jump right back into our interview with Andy after a short segment. Now it's time for another installment of Blog Post of the Week. I'm here with Emily Robinson, a data scientist on the growth team here at DataCamp. Hi, Emily. Hi, Hugo. Thanks for having me on again. This time, I'd like to follow up on our previous segment on the data ethics series by Mike Lukides, Hilary Mason, and DJ Patel, and discuss their third article, The Five C's. Great, Emily. So what are these five C's? They're consent, clarity, consistency, control, and consequences. This article is about how these can be used as a framework for implementing their golden rule for data, to treat others' data as you would have others treat your data. Let's start with consent. This is about needing agreement from the users about what data is being collected and how it will be used. The authors discuss a problem with data services contracts, though. They're often binary. Either you accept the terms or you don't get access. They're non-negotiable. And unfortunately, data is frequently collected, used, and sold without consent. And what's the next C? The next is clarity. Clarity is closely related to consent because you can't consent to something you don't understand. For example, while Twitter users generally know that their tweets are public, they often don't understand that they can be collected and used for research or even sold. Consistency and trust are another component. You need to be consistent to be trusted. An organization can break trust unintentionally when there's a data breach after they failed to safeguard customer data. In the case of Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, Facebook said at first it wasn't a data breach because the data wasn't stolen, but the public's perception was different. Facebook then became unpredictable because users didn't know how they would handle different situations. So then there was control and transparency, right? Right. Users generally don't have control over their data, they're given the all-or-nothing choice described above in consenting to use the data service, so it's often impossible to reduce the amount of data collected. 
it's also difficult to have it deleted later and to verify that it was, in fact, deleted. Finally, the last C is consequences. As the authors put it, often unknown unknowns are unknown because we don't want to know. So even though there are unforeseen consequences and risks that can't ever be eliminated completely, many could be seen if people tried harder. They're not advocating for never sharing data. The author cites several examples, including the Department of Transportation releasing data about traffic fatalities, where data was responsibly publicly released. But for it to be done safely, there needs to be lots of careful planning. Thanks, Emily. So what should our final takeaway be? The authors advocate for the five C's to be part of every organization's culture. Product and design reviews should go over it, and there should be checklists to make sure they're always being considered, even for MVPs or minimum viable products. Great. Thanks, Emily, for another great installment of Blog Post of the Week. Thanks, Hugo. After that interlude, it's time to jump back into our chat with Andy Gelman. Before we get into to polling and election forecasting, I just want to speak more generally to data science and statistics. I'm just wondering, moving forward, it's 2018, right? Moving forward from now, what do you think the biggest challenges facing data science and statistics as disciplines are? Well, speaking generically, I think there are three challenges of statistical inference. So the first is generalizing from sample to population. And that's a problem that's associated with survey sampling, but actually arises in nearly every application of statistical inference. You never, like, even if you have, like, people sometimes say, well, wait, I have data on the 50 states. That's the population. We're not going to have a 51st state anytime soon. And then even then, I would respond, okay, you have data from the 50 states last year or the last 10 years. What you're interested in is the 50 states next year, right? So there's always some generalization that that's involved. So ideas of statistical sampling always come up. Now, the second fundamental challenge of statistics is generalizing from the control group to the treatment group. As much of the time, we're interested in the effect of some treatment or intervention. And obviously, things like drugs or educational interventions or business decisions, but, but all sorts of social science things. Whenever you ask why is something happening, you're implicitly asking what would happen if I changed something. And with rare exceptions, we don't have a matched control and treatment group. Typically, the people who you can do something to are different from the people who didn't get the treatment. And so some adjustment needs to be made. And then the third is generalizing from observed measurements to the underlying constructs of interest. So that's most obvious in something like educational testing. You want to know ability, but what you get is test score. So we spend a lot of time designing instruments, designing survey questions, lab measurements, what those people at uh, Theranos, those uh, fraudulent blood testing people, that was all about measurement. So when you talk about challenges, I think those are all, those are the, the old challenges and they remain the new challenges. Big data tend to be messy data. So it's, it's not a random sample. It's convenient sample. It's an opt-in sample. Uh, you don't have control and treatment group. People choose their own decisions of what to do. And you don't often you don't have careful measurements of what you care about. You often just have data that are available from another source, which you're trying to adapt. And so for that reason, if you want to get good predictions and sensible answers and learn, 
you need to adjust for differences between sample and population. You need to adjust for differences between control and treatment group. And you need to model the connection between what you care about and what your measurement is. Now, all that can take a lot of modeling. So typically we say that you either can get you either get like good data or good model, or you have to have a mixture of both. You have to do a little bit of data, a little bit of work. You have to work on data collection. You have to also work on the modeling. So if you have big data and you need big model, then that's going to require a lot of computation and that's going to be expensive. And so you need algorithms for fitting models, approximately fitting models. We have some sort of good things in our corner. Like, for example, as you get a lot of data, often your inferences will become more stable. They won't necessarily converge to the right answer, but things uh, might look more normally distributed. That's from the central limit theorem. So that suggests that certain statistical methods, certain approximations might work well when you have a lot of data which is good because when you have a lot of data, that's when you need the approximations more. So there's a lot of things like that, like moving between there. I've been sort of moving between applications and, and, and research agendas. But the research is to fit these big models um, and to understand them. And that's continually going to be a challenge. So those are all really important points that we'll actually see focused even more through through the lens of polling and, and election forecasting. But before we get there, this idea of statistical inference and statistical modeling, I'm wondering what it takes to be able to be part of that conversation, I suppose. My question is, as humans, we don't necessarily have good statistical intuition. And I'm wondering how you as an educator and statistician would like to see statistical and data literacy change in general for, for a general population. There's different ways of looking at it. Some of this is procedural. So if there is an expectation that you, when you have an analysis, you put your data on GitHub and you put your analysis on GitHub and it's all replicable, that'll change. That I think that alone will, will help. That won't make people's analyses better, but it'll make it easier for people to see what went wrong. It's surprisingly difficult to get people to say or write exactly what they did. Um, I find this with students, but even like I've been in consulting settings where maybe there's an expert on the other side and they do an analysis and they write up their analysis and you can't understand what they did. They'll photocopy three pages from a textbook and say, we did this. And they they don't say where their data come from or, or anything. I've come to realize that a lot of people don't even know what they did. So people don't have a workflow. They just have a bunch of numbers and they start screwing around with the numbers and putting calculations in different places on their spreadsheet. And then at the end, they pull a number out and write it down and type it into their report. So there are those famous examples like that Reinhardt and Rogoff Excel error from that econ paper from a few years ago. But lots of... Uh, published journal articles where not only do the results not replicate, but people have gone back to the articles and found that the numbers in the paper aren't even consistent with themselves. For example, they'll say there is a certain number of cases and then they'll have a percentage and the percentage doesn't correspond to any ratio with that denominator. Or the they have the estimates and the standard errors and the z-scores, but they, they don't correspond to the same thing. And I'm just starting to realize people just don't have a workflow at all. So having requiring a workflow would, would help. When it comes to understanding, there's something you might have heard when you were a kid, which is if you have difficulty with a math problem, put a dollar sign in front of it. And then it, it's much harder to be off by orders of magnitude. And 
psychologists such as Gerrit Gigerenzer and others have put a lot of work into understanding our cognitive illusions and how we can fix those problems. And one one idea is to move away from probability and move towards frequencies. So there are these classic probability problems like you have there's a disease and 1% of the people have a disease and you do a test and the test for the disease has 98% accuracy. Somebody tests positive, what's the chance that they have the disease? And it's very hard to do that in your head. But what you can do is say, imagine you have an auditorium with a thousand people in it. Well, I just told you 1% of the people have the disease. So picture 10 people in the front row of the auditorium. They're the people with the disease. The other 990 don't. Now we're going to do a test with 90 per, did I say 90% accuracy? 98. No, 98% accuracy. Well, that that's tough because you have to do 98% of the 10 people. So that they, then you need higher numbers. So let me rephrase that and say it has 90% accuracy, just to keep the algebra simple. The test has 90% accuracy. So then you look at the nine people in the front row. Well, nine of them test positive and one's going to test negative. And you look at the 990 people otherwise, and out of them, 99 are 990 99 99 are going to test positive by accident that's 10 percent, and then the others are going to be negative then you take all the people who test positive you have them raise their hand and you see that we have nine sick people who tested positive and 99 healthy people who tested positive so most of the people who tested positive were were healthy so the amazing thing is i could do that all like by speaking in my head. And I couldn't solve the first problem in my head. Now, you could say, well, but I had to sort of screw around with the numbers because 98% didn't work. But that's kind of the point, that if you have a 1% disease and the test has 98% accuracy, you really can't solve the problem by thinking of a 1,000 people. You need a larger population. So we could think of a city with a million people. And now... Well, 1%, so 10,000 people have the disease. And I'm purposely talking this through to show that you can do it. 10,000 people have the disease and 990,000 don't. You could write this down, but you could try it in your head. Then of those 10,000 with the disease, 98%, so that's going to be 200. Um, so like I could change the numbers around a little. I could do, I could do it in different ways. But the point is that – like. Actually, having that denominator makes it easier to visualize. It makes all the numbers make more sense. So Gigerenzer's argument is that the denominator really is always there and the denominator actually matters. There's a difference between something that happens 10% of the time to 10 people to, compared to something that happens 10% of the time to 10,000 people. It's a different phenomenon. It would be a little bit like looking at – I mean, probability theory is great. But so the answer is there are ways of understanding probability better by thinking in terms of frequencies. And, and this is something we've actually seen in election forecasting as well. So that, this will prove a nice segue. I know at least 538 and, and Nate Silver's house model, they like to think in terms of they won't say we predict that the Democrats have a 75 percent chance of, of getting the house. They'll say a three and four chance because they feel that heuristically that helps people formalize it a, a bit better. They'll know one out of four times the Republicans will get it. Three out of four, uh, the Democrats will. And then you can even think in those terms, what does one in four mean? That's the probability of the frequency of getting two heads in a row, which isn't really 
like which you wouldn't be surprised if that happened, right? Oh, sure. Well, this happened before. Uh, I can tell you a story about Nate, but but first, um, this before the. 2016 election, someone said, well, what about this forecast? It's like there was some model that gave Clinton a 90% chance of winning. So I said, well, 90%, how do you think about that? And I said, well, nine, there's a presidential election every four years. Uh, 90% is 40 years. Uh, 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 every, so 10% means something would happen roughly uh, once every 10 elections or every 40 years. Well, I remember about 40 years ago in the 1980 election that um, it was supposed to be very close, and then Reagan won by, I think, seven percentage points. So it was a big surprise, much different than what was expected. So, yeah, I think it could happen. Sure, like there could be – now, actually, Clinton did very close to what she was polled. She she was supposed to get like 52% of the two-party vote, and she got 51%. So the polls, the polls are better now than they – in some ways, the forecasts are better now than they were in 1980. But that's how I calibrate one in ten. And as a political scientist, I often say I don't like 95% intervals. Because a 95% interval is supposed to be correct 95, you know, 19 times out of 20. For 20 presidential elections, that takes 80 years. I'm not really – I think it's kind of ridiculous to try to make a statement that would be valid over an 80-year period because politics changes over 80 years. Now, my story about Nate was in 2000. I think it was in 2012, he was going around, like he said, oh, uh, Obama has a 65.8% chance of re-election. Then next week, he'd say it was 63.2%. Then it was 67.1%. And it would jump around. It was meaningless. It's like, you can say he has a 60% chance, but to say a 65.1%, you can do a little bit of mathematics. What you can do is say, let's predict his share of the vote. Like, let's suppose he was predicted to get something like 52 or 53% of the vote. And then say, and there's some uncertainty, right? You have like a little bell-shaped curve. And if it's less than 50%, I mean, let's temporarily forget about the electoral college for a minute. That's not really the concern here. The point is that if his electoral votes are predicted to be less than 50%, then he would lose. Otherwise, he'd win. Now, to say, let's suppose you say the probability is 65.8%. That's going to correspond to a certain bell-shaped curve saying he's with his like expected number of votes and uncertainty. Now, it turns out if you wanted to shift that from 65% to say 66%, that would correspond to shifting his forecast share of the vote from something like, I don't remember the exact numbers, but something like 52% to 52.01%, something like trivial like that. So it's a meaningless number. It would be like saying Steph Curry is six feet, 3.81724 inches tall. And so I sort of got on Nate's case and I said, look, you know, I understand, Nate, you're trying to, you need eyeballs. So you need news every week. There's not much news. Obama's expected to win, but he might not. Every week, Obama's in the lead, but he might lose. That's what we knew. So it's hard. And one way of creating news is to focus on these noise fluctuations. So if he's shifted to saying things like three and four chance, I think that's a good thing. Um, he might have you know, lost a few clicks that way. But one thing I've always admired for many years about Nate is his integrity. And like, I don't think he would want people to get fooled by, by noise. So that's a very good thing that he's done that. So moving to polling, polling is generally thought of with respect to election forecasting. I'm, I'm wondering what polling is more generally and what type of things it can tell us. 
survey sampling is whenever you want to learn about the whole from a part, right? So a blood test is like a survey sample. They take a sample of your blood and it's supposed to be representative of, of your blood. And if I interview people on the street and ask them how they're going to vote, then that's supposed to be representative of the general population. Well, it might not be. We They do random digit dialing. That's kind of representative of the population, except not everybody answers the phone. Most people don't answer the phone, actually. Um, so it's not at all representative of the population. I was talking in my class, I was saying how I think it's mildly unethical to do an opinion poll and not pay people. Because you do a survey, you're you know making money from your survey. And a lot of pollsters do, like online panels pay people. But a lot of you know, telephone polls, they just call people up. I say, you're, you're kind of abusing people's goodwill by doing that. And then someone said, but what about like the kind of people who will only participate in a survey because you pay? Are they non-representative? And I said, what do you think about the kind of people who will participate in a survey for free? They're kind of weird people, huh? Most people don't. Most people hang up on pollsters. So survey respondents are, are not representative. We do a lot of work to adjust the sample to the population. Uh, we, we need to because like response rates are, are so low. But anyway, it's not just election polling. It could be public opinion. As I said, it could be blood testing. Um, it could be businesses use. Uh, they, they have if they audit their own records and they'll do if they want to do an audit, they'll take a random sample of records and then and then audit the random sample and use that to draw conclusions about the whole business, et cetera. So before we move into polling in a bit more detail, I'm just wondering, can you tell us why polling is even important? Well, George Gallup, who was the founder of his poll, wrote a lot about this. He he argued that polling is good for democracy. So there, there's two ways of putting it. Bill James, the great baseball analyst, Bill James, once said something along the lines of the alternative to good statistics is not no statistics. It's bad statistics. So what he was talking about was some like he was arguing that some baseball player was overrated blah 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 and then he quoted some sports writer as saying oh this bill james number cruncher doesn't know anything this batter was amazing he hit 300 all these times and he he, he blah, 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 got all these and bill james pointed out that let's look at what the sports writer said what did he say that what was his evidence that this guy was such a great athlete it was a bunch of statistics he was just using statistics so he was using statistics naively but he was still the guy wasn't like being mr qualitative he started talking about how the baseball player was hitting 300 now similarly suppose you are a legislator for example and you want to know about public opinion well i think first Public opinion is relevant. We don't always like when let when politicians follow public opinion too much, but I think we like them to be aware of public opinion. So if they don't have polls, what are they going to do? They might very well do informal polls uh, or canvassing, and that overrepresents certain kinds of people. That's going to be unrepresentative of the people they find hard to reach. Gallup's argument was pretty much that. Democracy is ultimately based on public opinion, and knowing public opinion between the elections is is important. A lot of issues come up, and it should allow politicians to do a better job, which 
seems reasonable to me. Now then, you know, beyond all that, of course, surveys are used all the time in marketing. So business people don't have to apologize for wanting to know what the customer wants. So it makes sense to, to do that. <laughs> marketing surveys are, are very interesting in, in part because you get into this question of connecting the observed measurements to what you really care about. Because mar is a marketing survey, how realistic is it? So if I call you up on the phone and say, would you pay $30,000 for this sort of electric car? You could say yes or no. That doesn't mean that that's going to actually make it out of the showroom because the survey is not realistic. Political surveys are a little easier. Who do you plan to vote for? That's almost the same as being in the damn polling booth and, and voting. So the, the realism of political surveys is much closer to then the realism of certain marketing surveys. And I don't know how long this has been the case, but we've, we've definitely seen polling affect. There's a feedback loop into the political and voting and election process. I think it was, so the primaries, right? I think the debates, your position on the stage and whether you're in the debate or not is actually dependent on your performance in polls, right? Oh, yeah. And Donald Trump, like he, he would always when he would give speeches in the primaries, he would talk about how high his poll ratings were until they weren't. And then he said they're unscientific. Well, yeah, but I'm t I mean, he has they I'm not talking about his approval, but the percentage of people who said they were going to vote for him. So he was polling very high, even when observers, um, outside observers didn't didn't seem to give him much of a chance. So yeah, there there is feedback. I'll, I'll say one thing that's there's a, a a useful feedback at least for pollsters. <laughs> Sometimes a question arises, why do people tell the truth to a pollster? And you'll sometimes get like pundits will say, hey, let's all lie to the pollsters. Let's screw them up. I don't like the pollsters. Tell them the opposite of what you think. And yet people don't do that. And there's a couple of reasons for this. The first is that, as I said, polls are opt-in. No one forces you to do a poll. So if you really hate pollsters, it's likely you won't bother to do it in the first place. But the second thing is that I think people think of a poll as like a way of voting. So if you ask, if I survey you and, you, and you know, do you approve of um, Donald Trump's job performance, you know, you think this might get out in the news somewhere, you're motivated. If you approve, you're motivated to say yes. And if, if you don't, you're motivated to say no. There's, there's a direct motivation to be sincere in your response. And again, that's not true of all surveys. If I ask you, do you do, do you, you know, take illegal drugs? You might have various motivations not to answer that honestly. And I couldn't answer that on air either. Uh, well, there's asymmetries like you could if your answer was no, and you could answer it on air if you want. I'm not asking you. I'm, I'm just saying that, that it's complicated. Um, so, so one thing that's not always well understood about political polling is that the incentive, uh, uh, the incentives align to actually encourage sincerity in the survey response. That that's very important. Now, the other thing you mentioned that I just want to touch on briefly is this idea of polls measuring public opinion. And this isn't this is more playing devil's advocate, not necessarily trolling. But I'm just wondering, you know, public opinion generally is sort of you know views that are prevalent among the general public. And does public opinion even exist? It's like Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. So to measure opinion is to change it. 
just you know how if you want to measure the position of a particle you have to look at it and looking at it means bouncing a light particle off of it and that that adds energy and it, it changes its its position and momentum so similarly if you want to know what someone thinks you have to ask them and then that changes now not always you can observe their behavior so that's there's other way you don't have to i i have a, a colleague matt salganic he's a sociologist at, at princeton and he wrote a book about social science data collection recently and he talked about you can survey people you can ask them or you can observe them and and those are different so you can actually observe someone without changing you can observe someone so inobtrusively it doesn't change their behavior sometimes so like I, you know, amazon can look at how you purchase now arguably once you know that amazon's looking then you might not purchase certain things or not search on things because you don't want them to know about it but until that happens you can observe them. Similarly with the security camera outside your apartment. If you don't know it's there, then it's observing you pretty well. So in, in that sense, if you, if you think of like we being measured, we're kind of in a cat and mouse game with those social scientists who are trying to measure us, that they're trying to measure us in ways that don't disturb us. And we might want to be aware of how we're being measured. We'll jump right back into our interview with Andy Gelman after a short segment. Now it's time for a segment called Data Science Best Practices. I'm back here with Ben Scranker, an independent data science consultant. Hey there, Ben. Hi, Hugo. It's great to be back on your show. I have a question for you. How do you know when you have the right answer? Oof. I feel like that's a loaded question, Ben. Why do you ask? Well, when I started out in physics, I too wanted to know if I had solved a problem correctly. I used to ask a cool grad student friend if I was right. He used to look at me like my question was ridiculous and would tell me, well, you just know when you're right. But I wanted something more concrete. Well, if anybody has a more concrete answer, I'm sure it would be a physicist. You're right, Hugo. I was fortunate to work for Robert Rosner, the former director of Argonne National Laboratory, who's quite a polymath, in addition to being an astrophysicist. He introduced me to what I was looking for, verification, validation, and uncertainty quantification, or VVNUQ. VVNUQ is an epistemological framework for thinking about correctness of models. It was developed in the nuclear industry where mistakes are expensive, really expensive. So how does it work? Well, there are three parts, verification, validation, and uncertainty quantification, like it says on the label. You pretty much move through them in order of maturity. Practitioners typically describe VVNUQ as... The first view is, did you solve the equations right? And the second view is, did you solve the right equations? That's slightly opaque, to say the least. I didn't find the VV and UQ insider's comment helpful either. For me, the first V verification means you need to make sure that your code correctly implements the model, regardless of whether the model is correct. How do you do that? Well, one of the best tools is to unit test your code. Many scientists and engineers think that it is impossible to test code which produces a number, but that simply is not true. You absolutely can and must test scientific code. Fortunately, you usually can if you are clever. Can you provide an example? Sure. I once wrote a unit test where I was able to pack a matrix with certain values so that I could compute by hand the answer our fancy algorithm would compute using Spark. So obviously, if you're using Spark, you're dealing with something that's super huge, but by choosing clever values, I was able to compute an analytic solution and then verify it in the unit test. The person who checked my PR was blown away. Great. So that's verification. What about validation? 
The second V, validation, make sure your model has fidelity to reality. How you approach this depends on the problem. Often, you can simulate data to make sure you can recover the original parameters from the data generating process, or you can run an experiment. And then, the mysterious UQ bit. UQ is about questioning the assumptions behind the model. Make them explicit. Check that they hold. What if they don't? Could you have a tsunami wipe out power for your nuclear power plant? Along what dimensions will your model break down? I know an economist who stress tests his work by taking it to a statistician who hates economists. Probably not the best UQ method. And how do you suggest baking VV and UQ into a more general data science workflow? Great question, Hugo. This is something you need to do, and not enough people think about systematic workflows. You should bake VV and UQ into your workflow. If you haven't thought much about workflow, Chris DM is the best one I have seen in industry, and we have already discussed it on DataFrame. If you combine VV and UQ and workflow, you will definitely be a 99th percentile data scientist. Thanks, Ben, for another great segment on data science best practices. You got it, Hugo. Time to get straight back into our chat with Andy. So now I want to get directly into polling, and this is something that's known. I'm going to quote quote you because you said it so well in an article in, in Slate magazine that we'll link to in the show notes. But you wrote, the statistical theory of traditional polling is amazing. In the theory, a random sample of a thousand people is enough to estimate public opinion within a margin of error of plus or minus three percentage points. Could you just give us the rundown of what this exactly means? This is the mathematics of drawing balls from an urn. So if you have a large urn that's full of balls and 55% of the balls are green and 45% are yellow and you draw a ball at random a thousand times, then most likely you'll get between 52% and 58% white balls. So I said white, I mean green. So they're green and yellow. And so it's 50, it's 55% in the urn and you draw a thousand each time you, you draw a ball and then you throw it back in the urn and shuffle it and draw another one, then the the mathematics of probability tells you that the most likely thing you'll see is 55% green balls, but there it could be between anywhere between 52% and 58%. That's there's a 95% chance roughly that it's it's in that range. So we call that the margin of error. So if you can actually sample people like drawing them from an urn, then you can you can learn about public opinion pretty accurately. But of course, this is th- theoretical, right? And one of the parts of the theory is that it's a random representative sample. So I'm wondering what the practical problems and challenges associated with this theory are. Right. So in practice, you, you can't draw people at random from the urn because like, there's no list of people. You can call phone numbers at random. Not everyone has a phone. Some people have two phones. Some people never answer their phone, etc. Um, then also, if you draw a ball, you get to look at it in the urn model. But when you're sampling people, you draw a ball and what if they don't want to respond to your survey, then you don't get to see it. So our surveys are systematically non-representative of the population. So what we do is we adjust for known differences between sample and population. So we our population is 52% female, but our survey is 60% female. We adjust for that. Our survey gets too many old people, it gets too many white people, gets too many people from some states and not others. Different surveys have different biases. Exit polls, I've been told, tend to oversample Democrats. Um, maybe it has to do with who's willing to talk to 
the exit poll interviewer. The kind of people who are willing to answer the phone are, are maybe different. Then the other thing is you need to worry about getting honest responses or adjusting for inaccuracy in survey responses, which, as I said, is less of an issue for political polling, but comes up in other surveys. Yeah, I'm really interested in this idea of calling people on, on the telephone because classically, you know, historically, everybody, well, a lot of people had landlines and you could do that. This isn't the case in, anymore. And my understanding is that there's legislation that means you can't automate phone calls to cell phones. Is that right? I don't know exactly what the laws are about what you can what you can and can't do. But, you know, there it was all kind of just a window. When, when Gallup started doing polls, it was they knock on doors because a lot of people didn't have phones back then. Right. So there was a certain period where a lot of people had phones and in other countries, not everybody had phones either. But again, even if you could call everybody, so what? Because the response are the respondents are not representative of, of the population. So it's really the the adjustment process that is really key as well. Yeah, it's both. You you want to get you got to try to get a representative sample, even though you're not going to get it. Like, because you want your biases to be correctable. So if my bias is that I have too many women, I can correct for that, or too many old people. If my bias is that I have too many conservatives, can I correct for that? Well, maybe, because you can ask people their party affiliation, and then you can match it with data on, on people's party registration. It's more work, right? If I'm asking about health care and I have a bias toward, and my bias is that people have health problems are more likely to respond to the survey. Can I adjust for that? Well, that might be tougher, right? So it, it makes sense to try to get that perfect sample, even though you're not going to get there to, to aim for it. And are these correction and adjustment methods relatively sophisticated statistically? Well, they're getting more sophisticated as our data get worse and worse. So the the short story is that there's three reasons they need to get more sophisticated. One is to adjust for inaccurate responses. But as I said, I'm not really going to focus on that. Second is differences between sample and the population. You want to adjust for a lot of factors, not just sex and age and ethnicity, party identification, lots of things. So when you want to adjust for more things, then simple adjustment methods like simple weighting methods don't do the job. So you need to use like, so we use a method called multi-level regression and post-stratification. Uh, there are other approaches, but you need more sophistication to adjust for more variables. And then the third thing is that we ask more from our survey. So we might want to know not just public opinion, not just who people do people want to vote for the Democrats and Republicans, but how does that vote break down among all of the 435 congressional districts? So even if I have big data, I won't have necessarily have a lot large sample in each congressional district. So you want to do statistical analysis to get those more focused inferences. So that's one reason why we, my colleagues and I have put a lot of effort into modeling the survey response is to be able to estimate subgroups of the population, like rich voters and poor voters within different states. Fantastic. And, and something that I know you've, you've worked in is thinking kind of outside the box, how to uh, get people involved in, in surveys. That was an unintentional poor pun, but because you've actually used gaming technology and Xboxes in order to get survey responses, right? 
Yes, my my colleagues at Microsoft Research in New York did that. So they the Xbox gaming platform. The Microsoft Research has some social scientists, and um, my colleagues David Rothschild and Sharad Goyle, who worked there at the time, designed a survey so they convinced the Microsoft people to put something on the Xbox in, in the last months of the 2012 presidential election, uh, where people could vote and say who they wanted to vote for. So you could it, it, every once in a while they got. They, uh, you get a reminder saying, would you like to participate in our poll? And then you'd give some demographics and say who you wanted to vote for. We had a huge sample size, hundreds of thousands of responses, very unrepresentative, an unusual survey because it overrepresented young men. Uh, most surveys overrepresent old women. But after adjustment, um, we were first, we were able to estimate public opinion very well. In fact, we're estimate, able to estimate public opinion more stably than public poll aggregators that had been out. Now, that, that's the good news. The bad news is we didn't act, we took the, collected the data in 2012. We didn't actually do the analysis till afterwards. So in theory, it could have been done real time, but actually it was a research project and, and we, we published it later. So we didn't beat the polls while it was happening. Um, but not only that, we actually learned something about political science and public opinion. So we learned, as I said, our estimates were more stable and better than the polling aggregate estimates from the newspapers and online. And it turned out that about two-thirds of the variation in the poll, the fluctuations like Romney's doing well, Obama's doing well, these fluctuations, about two-thirds of those fluctuations were actually attributable to differential non-response. So when Romney had some good news, Romney supported Republicans were more likely to answer the poll, which makes sense, right? Like, do you want to participate in a poll? Well, if my candidate is a laughing stock, maybe not. If my candidate is like doing great stuff, yes. So there was this feedback, a positive feedback mechanism. You know that uh, you know that you know negative feedback stabilizes, positive feedback amplifies fluctuations. It's a positive feedback mechanism, which is if a candidate is doing well, more of their supporters respond to the poll, meaning they, they look like they're doing even better. And so you get these big fluctuations from week to week. But then when you actually adjust for a partisanship, you find that the results are very, are, are, were much more stable. And, and we found that in, in 2016. Also, now you might say, well, maybe people's partisanship is fluctuating too, but we have evidence that that's not really happening. So we, there's there's various loose ends in the project that we tied up when we, we wrote our paper. All of that came from this collaboration with these people at Microsoft. And I'm glad you mentioned 2016 because, as you as you stated earlier, the popular vote the pollsters did pretty pretty well on. You know, within within one percent, right? I, it was 52 instead of 51 was what the pollsters yeah. said. But of course, in the electoral college vote, things were were relatively different. And I think something you've written about is that that's potentially due to the fact that in in several key states, people who voted for Trump weren't didn't necessarily respond in the polls. Is that is that right, or do I misremember? There's so much non-response. It's not it's not so much. I mean, sure. I think the 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 problem was more with 
state polls than national polls. That is even there were some people after the election or um, there some pollsters, Gary Langer and some of his colleagues wrote a paper where they analyzed their poll, their national polls by state. And they actually found that the, the the state level the state level analyses of the national polls were not that far off, but the state polls some of the state polls in Michigan and other states didn't do a good enough job of adjusting uh, for non response. So it seems. I mean, there was a lot going on, um, but part of it is that is that the non response adjustments weren't really as as complete and. It's it's an issue. Like its survey response rates keep going down, and so the raw survey data or even the weekly adjusted survey data are not are not always enough. So in the same um, in the Slate article that, that that I mentioned earlier, you also wrote instead of zeroing in on elections, we should think of polling and public opinion as more of a continuous process for understanding policy. I find this very attractive, and I'm just wondering if you can uh, elucidate this and tell me what you mean by this. Well, this came about. I think it's. It's it's particularly clear in the Obama administration um, that there were various issues that, uh, like the stimulus plan, the health care plan, where public opinion was seemed to be very important. There's a lot of both sides rallying public opinion in order to sway certain swing votes in in Congress. Uh, it's maybe it's less so right now. I mean, right now it's like okay, Republicans control the house the senate presidency and the supreme court and so it's sort of up to them what to do and public opinion doesn't seem to be directly influenced i mean they they seem to be willing to do uh to do various unpopular things to make use of the majority they have but in most of the time politics is at the legislative level it's a bit more transactional there are swing voters the Certainly, if one party controls the House and one party controls the Senate, then, then you get you get more power to various swing voters, and and at that point, public opinion can make a difference. So it's not just about who you're going to vote for; it's how people are going to vote once they're in office. How how so? Pollsters are going to be interested in public opinion throughout the process, and and. Because it's it's not really just about who you plan to vote for, but also what are your views on on various issues, whether it's foreign policy or or healthcare or immigration or trade or or whatever. And how does party allegiance play a role in that, though? Well, party allegiance is very is is very important. Is there's a lot of evidence that voters will switch positions based on what their party says even if you look at things like support for wars it's um there's uh, been just big jumps based on the party in power i mean people just like if you're a democrat then you support the same policy that you wouldn't support if a republican was doing or, or or vice versa or how things are labeled but you know it's like as the economists say it's it's exogenous pollsters like people pollsters are measuring opinion but at the same time politicians are trying to use that opinion. My my colleague, Bob Shapiro in the political science department, uh, he and a colleague wrote a book called Politicians Don't Pander, which was based on his study of 
various political fights, not elections, but legislative fights. And he argued that politicians think of public opinion as a tool, that there's a naive view of politicians wanting to do what the voters, what public wants, but it's actually politicians often are, are quite confident and they feel that they can sway the voters and they think of public opinion as something that they can manipulate. And so both sides are doing it. And so there's a, there's, and to the extent that individual Congress members and senators are involved, you also need to know about local public opinion, not just national. So, Andy, what does the future of polling look like to you? I don't have a great sense of what the future will be. Like, if you look traditionally, you'd say, well, lower response rates is is the future. Um, paying people to participate, online panels. Um, I think maybe in general, we should think of the people who respond to surveys as being more participants. Uh, the same way as like medical statistics, instead of thinking that we're measuring people and estimating the effect of the drug and people are just like counters that are being moved around, we should actually think of patients as participating in studies and really being involved, not, not just because you want to get more compliance, but also because people have a lot of private knowledge that they can share, as well as that if people should be more motivated to help out if, if they have more, more connection. So to me, it would be the future would be something a bit more collaborative. In the other direction, there's just going to be a lot of passive measurement, like things like Amazon measuring your clicks. That's that's like polling also. Um, so that's from from the opposite direction. So either if it's intrusive, I think people should be more involved or it's just not intrusive at all. So, Andrew, my final question for you is what, what's one of your favorite data science and statistical techniques or, or methodologies? You know, my favorite thing is something that I've never done and I read about. Um, so, so this was maybe 10 years ago, supposedly someone built a machine that you could stick in someone's office. And then if they're typing 10 minutes later, it could be a key logger. And supposedly the way it works is there are about a hundred keys on your keyboard. So it listens to the sounds and uses some classification algorithm to classify the sounds of the keys into a hundred clusters. And then having done that, it then uses simple code breaking techniques to estimate like which is the space bar, which is the carriage return, which is the letter E and so forth. Uh, of course, it doesn't have to be perfect. You can use statistical tools um, and then it can figure out what you're typing. So I've always wanted to, to build that. Now, that kind of thing, I don't know how to build. I mean, like it also involves having a microphone and, and, and doing sound analysis. I just think it would be really cool. These things are are pretty Bayesian. You're using a lot of prior information um, on especially the second step, the, the code breaking step. Of course, Alan Turing used Bayesian methods to crack the Enigma code in, in World War II. I I shouldn't really – that's my favorite example, even though I've never seen it. I just think it's the coolest. It's not something that, that, that I could really do, though. So I guess in that if, – if you want to talk about stuff that I could do, then my favorite technique would be multi-level regression and post-stratification because that's what we use to estimate state-level public opinion. It's how we, we did red state, blue state and estimated how opinions vary uh, by income in different parts of the country. Um, it allows us to – do our best to adjust for differences between sample and population. We can do it in Stan. So I'll, I'll push that. 
Great. And so multi-level regression and post-stratification will include some links in the show notes. It's also known as MRP or Mr. P, correct? Exactly. And then recently I started calling it regularized prediction and post-stratification because strictly speaking, it's modular. So multi-level regression is part. The first part is you fit a model to do the adjustment. The second part is having done that, you um, make inferences for the population, which is called post-stratification. So multi-level regression is one way of doing the model, but generally there, you could use the term regularized prediction, uh, which includes all sorts of other methods that are out there. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, likewise. Thanks for joining our conversation with Andy. We saw that the three biggest challenges facing statistical inference and data science are the same that they have been for some time, and that these challenges are also the main issues faced by polling and election forecasting. The first is generalizing from the sample you collect to the population of interest. The second is generalizing from the control to the treatment group, which we only have in rare cases. The third is generalizing from your observed measurements to the underlying constructs of actual interest. We also saw the importance of thinking of polling as a more continuous process of gauging public opinion and understanding policy, as opposed to focusing merely on elections. On top of this, we saw the need to get creative with polling methods in an age in which responses are dwindling, one example of which is using Xboxes for polling and then performing sophisticated correction methods such as Mr. P to correct for your non-representative samples. Also make sure to check out our next episode, a conversation with Brian Granger about data science, interactive computing, open source software, and Project Jupiter. With over 2.5 million public Jupiter notebooks on GitHub alone, Project Jupiter is a force to be reckoned with. What is interactive computing, and why is it important for data science work? What are all the moving parts of the Jupiter ecosystem, from notebooks to Jupiter Lab? to Jupiter Hub and Binder and beyond? And why are they so relevant as more and more institutions adopt open source software for interactive computing and data science? Tune in next week to find out from Brian, co-founder and co-lead of Project Jupiter, physicist and co-creator of the Altair package for statistical visualization in Python. I'm your host, Hugo Bound Anderson. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugo Bound and Datacamp at Datacamp. You can find all our episodes and show notes at datacamp.com slash community slash podcast.